and we have been talking now for a while about being rooted in Christ and planted in this family and fruitful in life. And as we've been praying and I've been preparing, I felt for my contribution in terms of the preaching over the next while, I'd like to have a look at the book of Galatians. And I'm going to start this morning looking at Galatians chapter 1. And then we're going to hear from, Art, uh, from uh, Michael Eaton next week, and then I'll continue. And the guys that preach with us over the next month or so, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians. And so I want to really encourage you this morning. So if you found Galatians, I want you to just uh, keep your finger there, because what I'd like to do is look at Acts 13 and Acts 14 as an introduction uh, to the book of Galatians. And that really describes Paul's journey. It describes Barnabas and John Mark, who was with them. And they had this adventure in the province of Galatia. I don't have a map for you, but maybe next week I'll have a map for you. And there were a number of key churches in that portion of that province that P Paul was involved in. And that included places like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, And those were some of the churches that were in the province of Galatia. And I want to just give you a short little praise. This is not uh, all of what happened, but out of the message, just a couple of key little stories, which I found encouraging as I, I read uh, this last week and prepared. And um, uh, this section in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, the message, Acts 13, is called, it's called Barnabas, Saul, and Dr. Know-it-all. <laughs> and I like that, right? And uh, I'm just going to read a couple of the stories. It says, The congregation in Antioch was blessed with a number of prophet preachers and teachers. Barnabas, Simon, nicknamed Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manian, an advisor to the ruler Herod, and Saul. And one day they were worshiping God. They were also fasting as they waited for guidance, and the Holy Spirit spoke. Take Barnabas and Saul and commission them for the work that I've called them to. So they commissioned them. In that circle of intensity and obedience of fasting and praying, they laid hands on their heads and sent them off. Sent off on their new assignment by the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul went down to Cilicia and caught a ship for Cyprus. And the first thing they did when they put into Salamis was to preach God's word in the Jewish meeting places. They had John along to help them as, as they needed and they traveled along the length of the island, and at Paphos they came upon a Jewish wizard who had worked himself into the confidence of the governor, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man not easily taken in by charlatans. The wizard's name was Bar-Jesus. He was as crooked as a corkscrew. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul in wanting to hear God's word firsthand from them. But Dr. Know-it-all, that's the wizard's name in English, stirred up a ruckus, trying to divert the governor from becoming a believer. But Saul, or Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, looked at him straight in the eye and said, you bag of wind, you parody of a devil. Why? You stay up nights inventing schemes to cheat people out of God. But now you've come up against God himself, and your game is up. You're about to go blind. No sunlight for you for a good, long stretch. And he was plunged immediately into a, shadow, a shadow, shadowy mist, and he stumbled around, begging people to take his hand and show him the way. 
I love this part. When the governor saw what happened, he became a believer. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? I find that quite funny. Anyway, but it is. It's an amazing miracle. And then it says, Scripture just so delightfully says he became a believer, full of enthusiasm over what they were saying about the master. It's wonderful, isn't it? This is a little bit from Acts chapter 14, this great adventure that they were having. It says, when they got to Arconium, they went, as they always did, to the meeting place of the Jews and gave their message. The message convinced both Jews and non-Jews, not just a few either, but the unbelieving Jews worked up a whispering campaign against Paul and Barnabas, sowing mistrust and suspicion in the minds of people in the street. And the two apostles were there a long time, speaking freely, openly, confidently, as they presented the clear evidence of God's gifts, God corroborating their work with miracles and wonders. But there was a split in public opinion, some siding with the Jews, some with the apostles. One day, learning that both the Jews and the non-Jews had been organized by their leaders to beat them up, they escaped as best as they could to the next towns, Lyconia, Lystra, Derby, and the neighborhood. But then they were right back in it again, getting out the message. And there was a man in Lystra who couldn't walk. He sat there, crippled since the day of his birth. He heard Paul talking, and Paul looking him in the eye. I love that. It says it twice when these miracles happen. Looking them in the eye, he saw he was ripe for God's work, ready to believe. So he said, loud enough for everyone to hear, up on your feet. And the man was up in a flash, jumped up and walked around as if he'd been walking all his life. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they went wild, calling out in their Lyconian dialect, the gods have come down. These men are gods. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since Paul did most of the speaking. And the priests of the local uh, Zeus shrine got up a parade with bulls and banners and people lined right up to the gates, ready for the ritual sacrifice. And when Barnabas and Paul finally realized what was going on, they stopped them. Waving their arms, they interrupted the parade, calling out, What do you think you're doing? We're not gods. We're men, just like you. And we're here to bring you the message. To persuade you to abandon these silly God superstitions and embrace God himself, the living God. We don't make God, he makes us. All of us and all of this, the sky, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, Iconium caught up with them and turned the fickle crowd against them. They beat Paul unconscious. They dragged him outside the town and left him for dead. But as the disciples gathered around him, he came and he got up. And he went back into town the next day and he left with Barnabas for Derby. A little bit further on. After proclaiming the message in Derby and establishing a strong core of disciples, they re retraced their steps to Lystra, then Iconium, and then Antioch, putting muscle and sinew into the lives of the disciples, urging them to stick with what they had begun to believe and not quit, making it clear to them that it wouldn't be easy. Anyone signing up for the kingdom of God has to go through plenty of hard times. And Paul and Barnabas handpicked leaders in each church. After praying, 
Their prayers intensified by fasting, they presented those new leaders to the master to whom they had entrusted their lives. Man, what an adventure. That is a serious adventure. And that's the background to the book of Galatians because these fledgling little churches were birthed into that context. That's the adventure that Paul and Barnabas had had. And now they write, uh, Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church to encourage them. And that's the background. So with that then, as a, a background, can I just summarize before we do that? The, the most powerful verse for me out of Acts 14 is verse 22, which says this, and this is the English Standard Version, they were strength, went about strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Man, I don't know about you, but that little verse is becoming more and more relevant in my life <laughs> and in all of our lives. Uh, God is doing an amazing thing in the church. God is doing an amazing thing in the world. And it's a privilege to be part of it. But hardship seems to be just part of the deal. God is taking us all to a deeper, deeper revelation and understanding of who he is. So we, we read in Acts 13 and 14 that they primarily went into the Jewish synagogues first. And they used Jewish history to preach to members of the synagogue. And if you go and read Acts 13 and 14 this week, you'll see that specifically. And then the unbelieving Jews come and stir up the God-fearing woman to persecute Paul and Barnabas. And John Mark actually can't take the heat. He can't take the pressure of the persecution. And he leaves. And they have this sharp disagreement. And we read on and discover that the, last, the crowd in Lystra try to worship them as gods. Um, and in the midst of all of that turmoil, Paul and Barnabas, they organize this fledgling little church. And they appoint leaders in the churches. It's amazing. It's an awesome story. And I love the tenacity of this man, Paul. He's stoned. Not like in the 60s stoned, but stoned with stones. He's stoned. It says he's left unconscious, left for dead outside of the city. But in his heart, there's this unremitting love for these Galatian people. He, he just can't help himself. He gets up after his, and there's, there's a hunger to protect those that have come to Christ. There's a hunger in him to, to, like a father, put his arm around these little churches and to ensure that they grow and are nurtured and develop. It's an amazing, amazing thing. In the heart of this man. He loved those churches like a father loves a baby. He loved them. He cared for them. He encouraged them. He nurtured them. But at the same time, as we study Galatians, you're going to see that he said some strong things to those churches that he loved. As a father speaks to his sons. And so let's with that now. Let's go and turn to Galatians chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to read the whole of the first chapter. I'm going to make some comments. And out of that, we're going to minister. You with me, guys, this morning? Good. He says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men through, or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers that are, who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and I say again, if anyone is a preaching a gospel to you, contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God, or am I trying to please men? If I was trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have, have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age amongst my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went up to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. What an amazing story. Doesn't it just excite you to read that chapter? It stirs faith in me just to read it. And I want to just make some comments, four little points out of that first chapter. The first is this. In the first three verses, Paul says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, the God and Father who raised him from the dead, and all brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Paul calls himself an apostle through Jesus, appointed by Jesus, appointed by God the Father. His confidence in his call is found in Christ, not in men. Can I just say that again? His confidence in his call is found in Christ and not in men. And let that be an encouragement to every single one of you this morning. It's God who calls. It's God who's called you and it's God who's called me. And whatever area of life or ministry he's called you to, your confidence and my confidence needs to be in his call on my life and your life and not in the approval of men. And the approval of man is a subtle trap that all of us have to overcome for our lives. And I've discovered this, especially when circumstances are difficult and things are not easy and the approval of man is not evident. It's at that point that you absolutely need to know by revelation that God has called you. When no one else is saying that God has called you, you need to know that God has called you. Amen. 
And I love how Paul starts this letter. Grace and peace. And he speaks grace and peace over the churches in Galatia. And I want to speak grace over you as a church this morning. Grace to you, Forest Town Church. Grace to every single family represented here. Grace to every family that will join this community of believers. What a wonderful word grace is in our lives. Aren't you so glad for the grace of God in your life? I am. And I can't define it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that would take too long. But here's just some simple thoughts about possibly what grace might include. It might include God's goodwill towards us and His good work upon us. The grace of God. His goodwill towards us and His good work upon us. And He speaks peace. And I want to define peace simply as this. Peace is that all that we need inwardly for our comfort and all that we need outwardly for our prosperity. That is the peace of God. What we need inwardly for our comfort and what we need outwardly for our prosperity. And I want to speak peace over you as a people this morning. All that you need inwardly for your comfort. Let this be a time of peace in your life. All that you need outwardly for your prosperity. Peace to every single family here. Grace and peace to you. In the name of the Father, who has called us all. Amen? And those wonderful gifts of grace and peace come to us through God the Father. He's the source of the fountain. They come to us through Jesus. Can I just point you to this note? It's the order of those two things. It says grace and peace. There can be no peace in your life without the grace of God. The grace of God comes first, and then peace comes afterwards. The salvation of Christ comes to us, and the natural byproduct of that is peace in our lives. The whole world wants peace, but they don't want Jesus. Well, the grace comes first, and the peace comes after. Amen? And verse 4, point number 2. Verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Have you ever wondered why God went to all the trouble to save you? (laughs) You know, the more that I get to know him, the more it makes me wonder, why did he bother at all? And just the amazing thing that Nick brought in terms of his prophetic word. All those things we don't want to know, other people to know about us. Those dark little secrets. Uh, Have you ever thought that sin is the most horrible thing that we could ever express? And the knowledge of that should frighten us, it should move us and... uh, But note how Paul emphasizes this little thing. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sin. He gave himself for our sin. That reminds you instantly that there's nothing to do with ourselves or the good works that we could do that could ever earn salvation. It's Jesus who gave himself. It's Christ who gave himself for our sins, and we all need him as a savior. And the Bible uses words like atonement. Christ gave himself for our sins to make atonement for us. And that's what the justice of God required. And Jesus freely submitted to that. And that's a right thing for us to understand what a great price Jesus paid. And I love this. Grace is this. Basically, grace is Jesus taking our punishment upon himself and turning it into favor. That's the grace of God. Jesus takes our punishment and he turns it into favor. And once we've thought about that and meditated on that a little, it, it's amazing that there needed to be such a great, great price paid 
by Jesus because the power of sin was so great that the only thing that could overcome it was the Son of God giving himself to overcome it on our behalf. That's the good news. (laughs) That's the good news. And Jesus sets us free from the anger of God, which justifiably condemns us to hell. But at the same time, Jesus also rescues us from practices and customs that alienate us and enslave us. And I'm so glad he does both of those things. Not only sets me free from my past, but he liberates me into a new future, which only he can liberate me into. I can be truly myself because of the grace of God, the power of his blood on my life and on your life. Can you write these things down, please? If you're making notes, four little things that the scripture says why Christ died for us. Four little things. The first is we've read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, and it's simply this, to rescue us from this present evil age. That's why Jesus died, to rescue us from this present evil age. And Rome, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 tells us the second reason. Simply this, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. That was his goodwill. That was his pleasure. And you, we all can quote John three sixteen, which said, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. The third reason that Christ died simply was this, is because God loved the world. Because he so loved the world, he gave himself. And Romans 5, verse 8 tells us this. It was as a demonstration of his love for us that he gave Christ to die for our sins. Those four little things. Why Jesus came to die for our sin. And I love Psalm 115, which kind of summarizes all those things together. And it simply says this in verse 3. Our God in heaven does whatever he pleases. <laughs> whatever he pleases. Whatever pleases him, God does. And basically, God died for our, you and my sin because it was his pleasure. Because it pleased him to do so. What a wonderful thing. It pleased the Father. And that's why he died for us. Point number three, verse six, says this. Paul speaking, I am astonished. (laughs) I am astonished that you so quickly desert him who called you into the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul expresses amazement and astonishment that these Churches that he had birthed are somehow getting sidetracked and just leaving the gospel that he preached. And there is a strong correction in his tone, but I want to say that for me, there's also a tone that's redemptive in how he speaks. And that's how a good father should speak. You want to redeem your children. You, want to, you don't want to just punish them. And I, I try to speak with my kids. I don't always get it right. But when, even when you're correcting them, you want to say, come my boy, it's for your future that I don't want you to behave like this. It's for your destiny that God is calling you to that this thing is not good for you. And that's what Paul's saying. Remember what we've uh, said over the last couple of months as we've looked at this thing of trying to put the gospel at the center of all things, the language that Paul uses. The gospel, the eternal truth of God, his curriculum of truth to us becomes my gospel, becomes internalized, we get saved, it becomes my, my gospel, and then it becomes our gospel as we, co- as we cooperate with each other and partner with each other to take it to the nations of the world. 
And for me, one of the most powerful evidences of the grace of God is the power of a transformed life. And I'm sure every one of you has a testimony of the power of God transforming your life. And that's effectively what Paul does in the second half of the chapter. He shares his testimony with the Galatians in verse 11 to 23. And as I was just thinking upon that, it was a very interesting thing that God didn't save Paul from poverty. God saved Paul from prosperity. (laughs) He did. He saved him from prosperity. Why do I say that? Well, because Paul already had a a purpose for his life. He had a position in his life. He describes himself as being a Jew of Jews. He was ahead of his peers. He was advanced beyond his years. He was ambitious to be the best. And he had a mandate to destroy the church. And he was pursuing that passionately. And God saves him out of that. The grace of God finds him, changes him, radically alters him. And he lives his life in a completely different way. Because of the grace of God. Saved out of prosperity into an absolute different kind of lifestyle. Romans 8 verse 29 is a wonderful portion that says this. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined. I trust that as I speak those words this morning, it brings confidence to you, one. And it brings comfort to you, too. Perhaps you feel that if God knew every mistake that you had made in your lives, He would never have chosen you. Well, He did know all the mistakes you're going to make, and He still chose you. Yes! That's the grace of God. Aren't you happy for the grace of God in your life? I could embarrass myself Oh, I could so embarrass myself just telling you the things I've done in my life. Especially when I was in my late teens and early 20s. I did some stupid things. But the grace of God is on my life and is on your life. God, the scripture's clear. God foreknew us from birth to death and yet he predestined us to be his own. Predestined you to be his own. That is the grace of God. I don't fully understand it. But I praise God who gives it. Okay, well, I thought that was a pretty good line. (laughs) It is excellent, actually. And the tone, must I say it again? I don't fully understand the grace of God, but I praise and worship the one who offers it. That's all I said. Anyway. And the tone of this letter that Paul writes to to the Galatian church, it's it's an emotional letter. I mean, you can't read it without being stirred with emotion. I mean, the way he feels about these churches. And for me, this seems to be the the, the main concern that Paul has is to clearly ensure that these baby fledgling churches don't get infiltrated by the poison of false doctrine. And he speaks strongly. He says in verse, whatever it is, six, I think, or seven, even if an we, so he includes himself, if we or an angel from heaven... Oh, if only I could see an angel, that would be really cool. Ah, angelic things, wonderful. Now Paul says, even if an angel comes to you, even if you have a revelation of an angel, and he preaches incorrect the gospel that I didn't preach to you, let him be cursed. Man, that is, that is strong language. That's not trying to win popularity with the people. Let him be cursed. I've said before, and I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, is not the one that I preached Let him be cursed. 
Mr. Nazca, full of grace and truth and compassion. Ah, man, Paul calls it as it is. And Peter also helps us. If you go and read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter helps us to identify what false teachers are and how we can identify them. And I want to just say to you, in the midst, and I don't say this pointing fingers at anybody or anything, other than to say this, in the midst of this world in which we live, where there's an infinite amount of stuff available on the internet, I want to just say to you, make sure that you are rooting yourself in the gospel of Jesus, in what you read and what you give yourself to. Root yourself in the gospel of Christ. Not in silly superstition, not in the next fancy thing that someone is preaching. Root yourself in the gospel of Jesus because there are many gospels out there. And now I'm shouting, sorry. Peter writes and he says, False prophets arose amongst the people just as there will be false teachers amongst you. Not out there, amongst you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and give themselves, uh, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. My friends, it's clear from the scripture that false doctrine is preached by people who are greedy for power, who are greedy for position, are greedy for prosperity, popularity, and they draw attention to themselves and away from the word of God. And the result is that the people who follow those teachings can no longer tell the truth from a lie. And it's a great theme of the writing of Paul, if you go and read any of the uh, number of the letters, for example, is he refutes those who have set up the work of the law above Christ, in the place of Christ through righteousness, and they so corrupt Christianity. And the language of verse 9, I've said it, I want to say it again, so strong, let him be cursed, anyone who attempts to lay a false foundation other than the one of the grace of God in our lives. And some gospels flatter our self-righteousness, Some gospels flatter our pride. Some encourage us to give in to the world and to all of its lusts. And I want to be as strong as this and say those are devices of the evil one. They are devices of Satan. And we need to be sharp that we are those that are giving ourselves to the truth. I want to say it's right that we preach that to reject the moral law of God as a rule of life will dishonor Christ and it will destroy true faith. But we must also preach and declare that all dependence for our justification on good works, whether real or supposed, is fatal, it is false, and it will destroy those who persist in it. We declare those things with all of our hearts. I'm zealous for people to do good works. The Bible says good works are good. But let's also, not be, let's also be careful not to put them in the place of the righteousness of Christ and not to in any way give way to something which will betray others into that and delude them. Righteousness of Christ, the grace of God upon our lives. Are you still happy you came? So how can we guard ourselves against false teaching? If it's a great theme for Paul, I want to just try and encourage you with three simple little things. The first is this. One, 
How do we guard against false teaching and the influence of that in our lives? One, be rooted in the Word. I wish I could get some kind of fancy thing, but that's it. Be rooted in the Word. And I don't know about you, but I've, uh, I've heard this story often. Those that they get um, to identify counterfeit money are usually people that work with money a lot, like a bank teller. Why? Because a person that works with the real thing knows how it feels, how it smells, how it tastes sometimes, and they can tell the counterfeit just by touching it. So what is my point? My point is simply this. If you are rooting yourself in the Word of God, if you are daily jumping, diving into the Word of God and letting it wash you, you can start to sense when something is not true, even though it sounds true, because you've tasted the real thing. Secondly, how do we guard ourselves against false teaching? Don't give in to seeking thrills and sensationalism. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 says this, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Jesus. Can I just say that again? A sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You know that little phrase, God calls us all to a simple and a pure devotion to the one and only true God. But I think this, that simple little phrase can be translated like this by some, that it's simply boring to have a simple and pure devotion to the one and only true God. And many go after thrills. Many go after sensationalism. The next thing. Let's give ourselves with a simple and pure devotion to the one and only true God. I don't say that to condemn anybody or anything. But I am saying Jesus needs to be at the center of everything that we give ourselves to. Simple, pure devotion to Him. And then... For me, the big one, bigger than the other two. Don't give yourself to pleasing men. Don't give yourself to pleasing men. What does Paul say in verse 10? He says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of him. Servant of Christ. And I've discovered in the years that we've been involved in church leadership that there are few things on this earth that are as a cause for such unhappiness as trying to win the approval and affirmation of people. And the desire to fit in is incredibly powerful. It is something that will take, all of us have to win this battle in our own lives. But the, the desire to fit in and just to be part of the community and, and not to be, you know, have you ever felt that pressure? I feel it all the time. We got invited this week for the first time in eight years to someone's party that is a person from our local community. And we just like went, yes! Thank you, Lord! Feeling normal now. Someone's invited us to a party. 
the desire to fit in. It's a powerful thing. I want to fit in, but I want to be centered around the gospel. I don't want to fit into everything that the community says I should need to fit in. In some ways, I am called out of, but I still want to be yeast in. Are you, you, you with me? I want to say this to you, that that desire to fit in can lead to bad decision-making, and ultimately, I want to say it strongly, it leads to sin. We are called to please God first and then man. Not man first and then God. Can I just point you to the, point, uh, the, the example of Paul here in this, um, in this portion that we've read? He would not attempt to alter the doctrine of Christ to gain favor with men or to avoid the fury of men. I mean, he was stoned and left for dead. He's not trying to fit in. <laughs> How's that for fitting in? <laughs> My friends, let us preach the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, and not fear the frowns of people, their furrowed brows, or look upon their favor by trying to get, by being worldly wise and trying to gain people's favor. Paul received the gospel by revelation from Jesus, and he was not led into, into Christianity by like education. He, he received it as revelation. And Paul starts verse 10 by talking about approval, and he ends verse 10 by talking about servanthood. And I want to say to you, the two are profoundly connected. And can I say this? Approval and servanthood are connected because we immediately become slaves to the people or the persons that we are trying to seek approval from. That's how it is. You become slaves. You become enslaved to them. And you're always trying to win, win, win approval, and you start to do stupid things and behave in an ungodly way just to fit in, just to be part of. Can I just conclude with this? There's only one that we can trust to look out for our own interests. There's only one who holds the future in his hands and knows your part in that future. There's only one. There's only one that cares for you with a perfect and unconditional love. Only one. And there's only one that can make all things work together for good. For those that are called and love him. Romans 8, 28. That wonderful family promise. There's only one. And all of us have been brought to a knowledge and faith in Christ. All of us have been called by the grace of God. Our conversion is by his power and his grace working in us. Jesus is revealed to us. And that's a wonderful thing, but he must also be revealed in us at the same time. Can the musicians come, please? We're going to worship now. But when I look at the life of Jesus, I see in him someone who lived a life of instant obedience. He never hesitated in what God called him to out of concern for the world or what people might think or how it might be perceived or how it might affect his life, even his life that he gave himself to death. Those things didn't affect him. My friends, when we start to live our lives like that, it's to the praise and glory of his grace in our lives. And that's a powerful testimony of the glory of God in the church. And I I trust that over this year, as we allow him to transform us from the inside out, that others would be able to look at us like Paul, and they'd be able to glorify God 
because of us. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because of the work of God in our lives. That people will be able to look and say, I glorify God because of what I see on those people's lives.